Follow Without Warning Podcast Season 3, Investigation Derailed with Sheila Waisaki on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Without Warning Podcast presents Season 3, Investigation Derailed. Come behind the curtain with private investigator Sheila Waisaki and examine a major injustice. Warning, the following episode contains elements that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Sometimes evidence answers questions, and sometimes it leaves you asking even more questions. Luckily, when we got access to more crime scene photos, I had the volunteers in my groups bounce ideas off of one another. Listen in as the amazing group of volunteers discuss what they see and what conclusions they come to. It's sometimes messy, it's always a lot of back and forth, and it's how my investigations work. We're going to jump right in to the round table of my Patreon members. Okay, so um, we got a, a bunch of crime scene photos from Jessica way back in, I think, April when we first started this, end of April maybe. Um, and that's what basically we have been going off of all along. That's what the podcast has been going off of. And that's what um, our forensic group, including Mark, has really been kind of focused on the pictures that we saw and did they match up to what was on the autopsy reports. Then comes Monday of just this past week when Kendra went to see Vicki at her home, got another flash drive, um, and, and Vicki didn't know what was on the flash drive as she, you know, understandably has never looked at any of the photos before. So she didn't know what we had and what we didn't have photo-wise. Um, Kendra was uploading um, the flash drive and saw some things that she knew that I didn't have or Sheila or Mark didn't have as well. Um, so once I started examining those, it really it gave me pause. Um, there were pictures of, there was a folder of Aiden, there was a folder of River, a folder of the autopsy taken by BCSO, the Berkeley County Sheriff's Office, and a folder taken by MUSC, who's the Medical University of South Carolina, who did the autopsy. So within their folders, there were a lot of the pictures that we already had, but there were also pictures that we didn't have. So I'm just kind of making bullet points of ones that really kind of stuck, stood out to me. I could be on this call for an hour. I'm not going to do that to you guys. Um, but specifically the folder with Aiden, we had no pictures of Aiden besides the unfortunate leg that was resting next to Katie's body about 12 inches away. Um, which again, if she's hit by a train, doesn't make sense that the leg would land exactly where Katie does. So what gave us real pause, and Chelsea was on the call as well, looking at the, um, the photos with the nurses, and we noticed, I don't know how to say, I, I, I don't know how to say it without being, it's very sensitive, but we don't know how that leg could have been expelled from her body, basically. Um, Aiden is completely protected underneath 
her fascia underneath the stomach. You know, you know all about the incision on her abdomen. However, that incision didn't go all the way through. It didn't penetrate all the way down to where Aiden was. So Aiden's completely protected underneath her. We don't know how that leg could have gotten out. And and now that I have the pictures from Monday, it's very hard for us to kind of wrap our brain around how Aiden could have gotten out. Chelsea, do you agree? I mean, yeah. And I was going to say, so there are multiple layers, you know, when you, multiple layers in order to get to your intestines. So they went through the skin and they went through the fat, but then there's more layers that protect like your muscular layer, your, you know, your fascia, that kind of thing. So they went through a couple layers, but there's still a complete layer of skin or of, of, you know, fascia for lack of a, you know, non-medical term, but, um, that is completely covering Aiden. So there was probably a small defect up top because part of the bowel was, you know, coming out a little bit, but still the way Aiden was positioned inside, it is very, very hard to understand how that, that leg could have gotten out of Katie's body. Danielle gets the information in. There are two people that sat down and went through the pictures, law enforcement, that were either working the case or worked the case that came forward. They believe that she came in contact with the train. So again, it's changing the direction of, okay, did she come in contact with the train. Because of that, because I know Danielle and how hard her group has worked, one's a former police officer, are saying, we know she came in contact with the train. So I needed to put that out there because we need to make sure that we let people know what's going on. And then Kendra has been meeting with Vicki, God love Kendra, for taking the time to do this. And so I'm going to let her talk about what she's found. Okay, a few of the other things that were new pictures on Monday were a lot of the tissue that was strewn on the crime scene. Um, A lot of it looked very organic to me, the way it landed. A lot of it um, was pointed out by Rebecca during a call, which was an amazing observation, was did they actually recreate where all that tissue came from? Was all the tissue accounted for? Um, Because we have about 10 points that different tissue was on the tracks. The only places it could have came from was her abdomen and her thigh. So is all of it accounted for? There's one piece of tissue that landed in the middle of the tracks that actually has thread wrapped around it. And it's thread that is very similar to like her hoodie or her sweatshirt, That, that kind of knit thread. Um, I'm not saying that's where it came from, but that's the kind of thread it is. It's not like from jeans or or her underwear. It looks very kind of like a hoodie. Um, and it's it's wrapped around this tissue, but there's no damage to the actual sweatshirt. Um, so a lot of the way the, the tissue landed and where it landed also kind of made us think, how, how could it got, have gotten there? There was a photo put on 48 hours of the dollar bills and the dimes and the rings. 
Um, but that wasn't part of our original photo package. We actually got the photos on Monday because that was part of the autopsy pictures. Um, and what they didn't show on 48 hours was there's actually a nail clippers with the scissors that's on the say evidence tray. So it's the two dimes, the two, um, dollar bills, the note the, or the letter that was found in her pocket. There's also a few hairs. They're short hairs. They're darker. So were those ever examined? And why would there be a nail clippers there if they didn't take nail clippings or did they? We, we don't know. Um, so that also gave us something to think about. Um, we had a few more river or photos of River in a folder. On the autopsy report, it stated that River had posterior lividity, which means she had lividity on her back. However, she was found floating on her right side. The lividity on her back could indicate that she had been deceased on her back before she was put in the water. With the photos of the dollar bills and the dimes had her wedding rings and her engagement ring was very bent or crushed and was also missing two stones, but the, the loose stones were there. But her actual wedding band is in pristine condition. So I had asked Vicki, was she always known to wear both of her rings? But Vicki said she always wore both of them. So how did only one of them get really bent and then those loose stones come out as well? So, but those are mostly the new observations that kind of came in on Monday. So there's more questions, would you say, than answers from those pictures? There's more questions how those things occurred, how they happened, yeah, and what caused them. So um, as you mentioned, Danielle, um, Vicki had two drives that um, she, I think she had shared with her lawyer. And um, she thought we already had it all, but she actually just asked me to make copies of the drives for her. So it wasn't that she thought she was giving any new information. So I met with her to get the drives. And when I loaded them, it was, you know, I mean, hundreds of pictures we had never seen. So um, one of the drives truly was a copy of things we already had. It was a lot of the paperwork. Um, but as far as uh, the crime scene photos and, and things along those lines, um, definitely was new information to us. I believe, in my opinion, and I want to hear from you all, that that is a secondary location. That is not the crime scene. I, I think the lack of blood, you cannot get around the lack of blood. If somebody on here thinks that that was the primary crime scene, I want to hear from you. And we know from the documentation we have, it rained a little bit, but not a lot. My nurses here, wouldn't there still be the pool of blood? There'd be evidence. There was also a pool of blood by her left ankle, and it's small. It's about a six to eight inch small round pool of blood, but there was no injury to that part of her body. So that's the only actual pool of blood is down by her left ankle where there's no injury, but that's also where some gravel was disturbed too. It's basically just dirt underneath that blood. 
whether you get the pictures only or you're at the crime scene, you expect to see certain things. And I think John Warden pointed out gravel on her knees if she was kneeling or her clothing. The reason I've shared the clothing is so you all can see the lack of evidence on the clothing. They look to me like cut marks. I tried not to make it too chalk outline-esque, but I cut out Katie's outline. So this, these are the rocks immediately around her body. And the point of it was to show you that there's no blood. Like I can, no splatter, no pools. There was a bit of a pool here. Maybe it, it, that's where the pool of blood was by her left ankle and where the ground is disturbed. It was a lot water, but it did have some blood mixed in. Yeah, but no injury to her body there. Correct. Erin, go ahead. It, it looks like almost like a footprint. The, it did It did look, there was a footprint in here. Okay. And the problem is we have no way of knowing whose footprint it was. There was a couple footprints that I saw when we were looking through the pictures and stuff. And, and we have no way, really, I mean, I guess we could try and go back and look at pictures and see, but really, we're not going to be able to prove whose it was, but Danielle? Well, there also was um, shoes in some of the photos from the officers going over the body, taking a close-up, so it could have been their shoe. I mean, there are actual pictures of their shoes in the picture, so you know, we might never know that. So, so my nurse is in here knowing the injuries to Katie's body. How much blood do you think you would see at the scene? And, and just so you guys know her femoral artery over here is where it was severed. Even if you're deceased, I mean, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine a whole pool of blood would just continue to seep out. It is a a hose for lack of a better term. Like that is a major, major vessel. And to not even have anything, I mean there's nothing. Even if it was raining, you would see like streaks of of blood being washed away. I don't understand how they can look at this scene and say that is where she died with the injuries that she had. So a question just for the nurses and those had, that have examined the pictures. I mean, the the strength or the the speed of the train is going to, in my thoughts or in my opinion, throw her from the from the tracks. Right? She's not going to fall directly next to the train. Is there any road rash or anything like that from the gravel at all? Nothing. There was a tiny bit of mark, like like a couple scrapes, right, Danielle, on one of her arms. There were scrapes on, not really, not really her arms. There were scrapes on her backside and on her actual, like her right side, kind of underneath where the bra would rest, like the bottom of your bra strap where it would come around. There were scrapes there, but not. When you say scrapes, can you d- describe it just a little bit more? There were there were red scrapes, almost like a like I, I don't want to say road rash, but that kind of scrape. But how how many inches would you say? Um, a, a couple inches. Two to three I may inches. be able to show those in Patreon. 
Yeah. The the portion I'm thinking of, it looked like maybe like if you bump against a table or something and you get like a couple scrapes on your arm. It's not like tumbling over this jagged rock. It's the only thing that I could see on her body that maybe I could see happening by the rocks was on her elbow. It almost looks like if you go straight down on a rock, there's a big almost like a puncture like she smacked her her elbow on something and it's pretty deep but that's the only mark on her body that to me looked like a rock could have done it and that's her right elbow yes now it's her right elbow injuries to her left hand and wrist are on the left side if you're hit by and again we're still going with the 70 mile per hour train and you're going to be scraped, don't you think you would have more than what you've seen? Your analysis is exactly right, like bumping into a coffee table or something. 100%. There are two things about the slope that I find interesting. The slope is not significant enough to wash away the blood, and there still would be staining on her, which is missing, and also you would have the evidence there that you physically can see. The one person that did their job was the person that took these pictures. We have photographs that probably are the only thing that was done well that day. Mm -hmm. Second thing I want to say about that, since we've started talking about this case, they have built up the gravel in that area recently. Oh yeah, the slope. Yeah, it's it's definitely different. Nancy? Um, do you have pictures of that exact scene after her body was lifted up? We don't. Mm-mm. I mean, there would have to be so much under her body, even if it was raining, that would have protected everything. But don't forget, Nancy, we have pictures of her clothes and on the inside of her jeans, there's no blood. Possibly the outside a little bit mixed with dirt, but, but I mean, on the inside, there's nothing. Danielle, how do we get the information about underneath her then? From the autopsy pictures, but we don't have pictures of the, the, the ground here, but okay. there's pictures of her backside on the autopsy pictures. I just wondered, uh, the rings, was she actually wearing the rings when she was found or do we not know that? They were in her pocket, but we don't know which pocket. And tell them about the pocket, how significant the things in the pocket are. Well, there's the $2 bills and the letter. It's unknown which pocket they came from, if they were in the jeans pocket or the jacket pocket or even her hoodie pocket. But there's no blood on any of those items. And also, Vicki did tell me that Aaron put the rings back on Katie at the funeral. And I don't know how, (laughs) looking at that engagement ring, I don't know how he got that ring back on her, but he did put them back on her at the funeral. How is it that, that parts of her tissue are torn, left on the track, but her jeans aren't torn off with them, right? I mean, for those that have seen the clothing pictures, the jeans aren't missing huge pieces, are they? I didn't think so. On the back of her jeans, there's one, how many inches would you say about six, seven inches? Oh, I would say it's almost 12. I mean, it goes from right under her like 
butt to almost the knee. The most significant part about that, Danielle, is what? There's no injury to the back of her leg underneath that cut. No cut. Zero cut. So you have jeans that she has on, like you said, why are they not torn off, Kendra? And then 12 inch cut and no injury to match it. And that's why you all are seeing these pictures, because I want you to be asking these questions. How could this be? Is there a chance that um, the cuts on the jeans and the shoe being found laces open, that she was dressed post-mortem? Vicki did note that that is not how Katie would have dressed. Like Sheila said, it's not what she had on earlier in the day. Uh, Katie wore more bright colors. She's wearing a black shirt, uh, jeans, black socks, white tennis shoes, not typical attire for Katie. And she's out at night driving, supposedly, uh, with no glasses. And while they weren't required for her to drive, she saw halos when she drove um, in the dark and really, really was uncomfortable driving at night. And she had her child with her. And her child. Right. And if you haven't seen the video that Kendra did, I'm posting it tomorrow. I just had a comment on that video. Um, I, I just have to say thank you, Kendra, because you gave a really better perspective of, of where Harrison's house was compared to where the, you know, the final incident happened. And the fact of it's a six minute drive just for you going, you know, under 20 miles an hour is huge. In my opinion, there's no reason a mother would be out there with her baby in her arms, you know, at that length of where her vehicle was. So yeah, it gave a really better idea as far as more questions, more not understanding why they're saying it was, you know, her driving herself and walking that far. So we're going to switch gears to something that we got information on, one of our tips, the case file. You guys have broken it down to, wait a minute, this person signed it here and this person's badge number's here. And then we're finding out that, in fact, those people were not present. They did not do the documentation. It's basically, if correct, if the former police officer is telling us the truth and I think he has more to lose by coming forward. That documentation is falsified. We're going to re-ask for certain things and protocols. So for instance, if you listen to the episode, Mike Morford said that he worked a case, he worked a podcast where a police officer in Arkansas had someone else do all his reports. Well, we've got to find out if that was the protocol in that area. The other thing that we found out from this former law enforcement is at the scene, this particular officer shows up and he's sent home immediately, but he's in charge of the investigation. So he's not allowed to say stay at the crime scene, but his name's all over everything. The person that sent him home, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Kendra or Danielle, the person that sent him home, we were told by him, was Rick Allen. I don't know how significant this is. He never assigned a lieutenant to work the case. So they have a protocol they're supposed to follow, supposed to go to a lieutenant and then the captain, but they bypassed it. It just went directly to the captain. Is that important? Maybe. 
How important is it for us to have the accurate information of who witnessed what, what uh, witness came forward, how the police documented it? Well, it's illegal to falsify records. So first of all, you know, when you write something down, if you write it, that's what happened. If you don't write it, it didn't happen. So when they're falsifying records, it makes anything that they write questionable. Everything that they've written, you you know, you falsify one record and you go to court. Well, (laughs) it makes everything they wrote. Well, did you falsify this one? You know, it's a huge problem, in my opinion. I agree. To that point, my opinion that they're all messed up. I mean, even starting with the first, the first, you know, the main incident report where the responding officer goes out, they list on, is it John Williams? Is that his name? His ad, they list. The the guy that called it in, Williams, they list his address as his CSX business and phone number, but on his written report, they put his home address. And then the that responding officer says he that he leaves the scene at 12 and they haven't identified the bodies, which is not true. So it's just all throughout the, the all the reports, you know, Rachel's, um, well, first of all, we have almost no corresponding actual interviews to any incident reports yet that I know of, they're going and, you know, filling out incident reports months after interviews are done. I mean, that's problematic to me. And they're just summarizing what's in an actual written report. So we don't know what actually came from there or what they kind of took liberties with. And that's a problem. Well, yeah, I agree. Some of the, a couple of the reports say that they leave the scene at 12 but there's photos taken at 12.32, So someone didn't leave at 12. We know that the camera time is correct. I would think that's a good question. Out of everything been, that's been done, the camera person is the only person that I think has actually done their job. Yeah, the, the number of photos we have is rather impressive and it's not just one photo i mean they're taking photos of every single angle i mean say a piece of tissue it's taken from all four angles it's taken from up above it's it's taken with a flash without a flash um and the photos do begin about 20 minutes after it stated they arrive at the scene so it it was the timing was pretty accurate Kendra actually mentioned that when she was talking to Vicky that she had spoken to the diver, his name is Trevor, and he was the one who actually went and got River from the water and that he was very, you know, forthcoming with Vicky. And I had a question in regards to River's face was very, very red compared to the rest of her body. And I wasn't sure, to me, that didn't make sense. So I wanted to kind of ask him about why that would be. And so with Vicky's permission, I reached out just to ask him, you know, if that was something he saw often. And he was really, really nice. He's very forthcoming. I mean, he basically said that he wasn't sure why that was. However, he was, he was, in his honest opinion, he does not believe it was a drowning because if people drown, they, they sink when they drown. I asked him if he had heard Joseph Williams talking at all. And he said he he saw him. He may have seen him there, but he didn't hear anything. I was interested to hear what Joseph had to say, but he didn't hear anything. And it was just a quick observation with the distance of where she is from the tracks, kind of out, out uh, away from everything. The person that found her from the, the track, um, 
from the, the train yard versus the time of when that person called it in and when Aaron claims that he heard something over on the radio station. The last thing on a person's mind when they're calling in um, that a Beisman found is to then start telling a radio station or telling another person and that person. So that whole timeline too just raises a red flag. Where where that video is as far as away from it might have you know noticed it and would have been that type of person to call it in. That 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 whole thing with the radio station, I guess, doesn't doesn't make sense. But that just raises another rated flag on the timeline. I had heard that the diver, well, after he pulled River from the water, the officers wanted to have him just set her on the ground while they finished taking pictures or doing whatever they had to do. And he he wouldn't do that. He held her for, you know, anywhere up to an hour while they finished up, he wouldn't just set her on the ground. He said she looked like a perfect little baby. So it's it's heartbreaking, but he seems like a really good guy. What that says to me is that he looked at River like a human being and a baby and that the officers did not look at the crime scene as these are people, somebody's baby and grandchild, just discard them. I've seen that on other crime scenes. So a question on the crime scene and if this is normal or not, um, in Aaron's interview that he gave on the 24th, um, when he went into the police station and that video is available on YouTube for viewing in there, he references that that night he went down to the tracks at 8.30 PM and he walked out there and it was eerie how dark it was. Would that area still have been crossed off? Would he have been allowed to walk out there? It, things are not always the way you think they should be. It should have been crossed off and, and blocked off still. I'm not sure it was because I don't know if they followed the protocol. A hundred percent, I don't know. Yeah, so it's it, his wife and, and babies are recovered that morning, 8.30 p.m. Well, and actually, it, that's not even 12 hours after all this happens. It's dark, right? So it would be a replica, basically, of the night that Katie was out there. Um, he walks out there, and he said he couldn't even go all the way out because it was so eerie. He only went part of the way, and he used the word eerie to describe it. Everybody's different when you find out that your two children are deceased and your wife is deceased. I don't know how you could go down to that area. I just, I, I really don't know. And maybe it's just the way I handle things. Not to mention the fact, I would think, especially so soon after the event, that you would be surrounded by family and loved ones. You wouldn't necessarily be alone to where you would have that opportunity. I find that odd. That's a great point because I don't think, you know, just going back and, and I know several of us have experienced it you're not alone. You're with people the whole time. Somebody's with you. You all want to stay together and mourn together. So that's a great point. And one other thing, did he even know where it happens? Because he wasn't there that morning. We're getting information, which we're going to share bits and pieces that we can with y'all about observations from family members. Uh, My question was about when Aaron went back to the scene, or maybe not a question, but a statement that that was my same thing was how would he have possibly known where she was found if he wasn't there? Um, The second thing on what Jill's talking about, as far as Aaron goes, is I went back and re-listened to uh, Aaron's interviews 
with a bleep mm-hmm. and made a, spe- a specific note because I thought that's such an odd way to describe it. But the police had were talking to him about um, their beginnings and their early days and when they started dating and all of that. And, and when he talked about their marriage, it, I'm paraphrasing, but it, it's, it, he said something to the effect of, well, yeah, we got married. We got that over with. How, how would you ever describe somebody that you want to spend the rest of your life with that is supposed to be the love of your life that wants to be the mother of your children? We just got that over with. But it's just his best friend. It's right. But it yeah. goes, it yeah. goes exactly with that inability to be intimate. Mm-hmm. It, it distorts your, your yeah. sexuality, your, your desire for mm-hmm. sex. Yes. I mean, and, and, it also affects how you view your sexuality in terms of where you want to put that desire. There's, there's a lot I skimmed over. The conversation about the firstborn male bloodline, who heard that? Who was that said to? It was from Rhonda, correct? Uh, as I understand it, that was from what was on the table in the kitchen table. Bible study, Renee, do you know? It it was a passage that was highlighted in Aaron's grandfather's Bible. And I think the assumption or, or the refer- the inference may have been made that Katie had highlighted that. But typically you don't you don't highlight in someone else's Bible. You don't it's kind of just kind of a just something you don't do for lack of a better word. So yeah. that's where that came from. But if you go into the story that's, that that Bible verse is about, it's really about trusting God no matter what, what the outcome is going to be because that's where Abraham is going to sacrifice his son on the altar because God told him to. And at the last minute, he provides an alternative. Who said that Katie was not pure enough for the blood, their bloodline? That was kind of what I was referencing. Rhonda. And who heard it? Who did she say that to? Great question. Jill, do you know? Jill, who knows? Everybody seems to know. Just tell me. Um, Vicki asked Aaron why Rhonda wasn't excited about having a boy. And Aaron said, well, this is the answer that Katie wasn't a virgin and therefore the bloodline is going to be tainted. Who came from Aaron? This case, in my opinion, can be resolved. We're almost there. Um, but we need a little time and hopefully we've got everything we can get from Vicki, but now we've got to get it from the city. Our whole goal is to help family. I appreciate y'all doing it and putting in the time. doesn't have a support system like the others do. That's a great point. As investigators or as people helping families, we're coming in it with no emotions, really. I mean, we get, I'll tell you, we get emotional, but we didn't live what they live. Each one of us has a talent. The reason we're taking a break is because things are way too fluid for me and we got to get a handle on it. Amazing to help these families. And it's great that you're coming in in a group. I do this every day and have done it before this came into life before you all were given to me by God nod. I am so careful with these families because they get attacked, they get abused, they get lied to. So there's a lot of forgiveness and mercy that I give. Not that you don't, because I 
worked with you and I know what you do. And I'm not attacking you. I'm saying, you guys, we're taking a break as a podcaster because we've got to get those answers. We're not stopping to help, but we're we're stopping until we get worked through this this paperwork. It's done all the time in my cases. It's done all the time. I'm so sick of it. And I'm actually going to get really mad. I'm so sick of the games and the fight these families have to go through and the things that they have to put up with just to find out answers. And I'm telling you, it's in every single one of my cases right now, every single police organization, and I'm not beating up the police. I am sick of the games. The gamesmanship needs to stop. It's either open or closed. You're either there to give these family answers or you're playing games because you're covering your rear end. So much is happening. We're going to put out one more episode next week featuring our forensic group. Then take a break so we can have the time to evaluate all the new information coming our way. It's people like you, the listeners, who are propelling this case forward. I can't thank you enough for all the information you are sharing. And I have to thank my Patreon volunteers again for the time they sacrificed to help me crowdsource justice for Katie, River, and Aiden. If you have any information you want to share on the podcast regarding the deaths of Katie, River, or Aiden, email tips at SheilaWysocki.com or call 1-888-599-0008. Join Patreon and Crowdsource Justice with private investigator Sheila Wysocki. If you or someone you know is dealing with suicidal ideation or is actively thinking about taking their life, please call the National Suicide Hotline at one 800 273-8255. Without Warning Podcast, Season 3 Investigation, Derailed. Executive Director, Executive Producer, and Host, Sheila Waisaki. And Announcer, Tim Evans. Thank you to Lori Morrison of the podcast, The Unlovely Truth. Thank you to Danielle Birch, Chelsea Sarkowskis, and Private Investigator Jenny Moore for their boots-to-the-ground, passionate, laser-focused research. <laughs>